Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Earth News Interviews. My name is Dean. Joining me today is my co-host, Sophia. Hello. And our guest today is Uli Wortman. Good morning, everyone. Hey, Uli. Thanks for being here today. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm excited. Yeah, us too. Yeah. So, Uli, we haven't actually had any classes with you yet. Uh, I, I probably will be this coming this coming semester, but I've, I've actually only known you as, uh, is it the undergrad chair? Yeah, but I'm no longer, right? So since uh, I stepped down July 1st and Bridget Berquist is now the new chair. So you get to focus on your research now. Uh, yep, and some good teaching and uh, all the fun stuff. And I don't long, I no longer have to worry about what's going to happen in the fall, which is really great given these crazy times. We'll avoid talking about it, I'm sure. It's been, <laughs> it's been a real stressor for you. <laughs> so, Uli, we wanted to know, I mean, Dean and I haven't taken any classes with you, but what courses will you be teaching? So I will be teaching uh, an introduction into uh, Python this fall term. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started teaching that class three years ago. First, it was with MATLAB, then I changed it to Python. And this year, we're going to be in our second year of Python. So I think that's going to be really exciting. Certainly exciting for me. Um, then I was supposed to teach the capstone field course where we were going to the national parks in the U.S., uh, like uh, Grand Canyon, Death Valley, all these beautiful places. Uh, but then came the pandemic along, so we canceled that. And um, we will do now a fourth-year course on the geology of North America, which will be more run like a seminar type of course. But I, I believe it will be also very exciting. And if we're lucky and in May there's no more travel restriction, we may still just decide on a, on a whim to go places. So we'll see how that goes. Mm, cool. So what kind of uh, research have you done in your academic career? What is it that you focus on? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I started out um, doing um, a master's in um, deep water sandstones, right? Turbidites and likes, reservoir characteristics, um, seismic, and all these kind of things. I did that in um, Panama, the border to Costa Rica, where we mapped actual sandstones. And... Um, then I went on and uh, had a, found a supervisor for McGill who was interested in deep water sandstone, Reinhard Hesse. Then it, but then it turned out that there was no money in uh, Canada, but there was plenty of money in Germany and his old field site was in Germany. So I started there. I didn't believe a word of what he told me about those deep water sandstones based on my experience. So it was not an easy relationship. <laughs> and I was much more interested in the clay stones, which we found between those sandstones because they were alternating green and black. Um, so I got really into the geochemistry of those clay stones and what have, why are they sometimes green and appear and why are they sometimes black containing lots of organic matter? And I think that became a bit of a theme, the whole thing about we call it remineralization of organic matter, really what controls the burial of reduced carbon how much carbon gets reoxidized, how much gets buried, which is 
really intimately linked to our today's talk on oxygen because it is the burial of organic matter which controls how much oxygen is in the end in the atmosphere. So that was my PhD. And then I wanted to go out and learn more about carbonates. Went to ETH and uh, did some carbonate uh, work. There I got into touch with the whole isotope theme, stable isotopes of carbonates. Wanted to go on and do, uh, had then the chance to join an ODP cruise and we wanted to look into myosine carbonates. And uh, as it happens, the seismic was all wrong. There was no myosine and pretty much everything, every other research subject on this uh, cruise was taken. So the only thing nobody was working on was sulfur. So I said, okay, we're going to do sulfur. We got to do something. So we looked into sulfur in pore waters and that turned out to be a really big story on that cruise. But sulfur, again, is very intimately linked to organic matter remineralization. So the circle starts closing. And mm, there we go. I think what really has always been driving me is to understand what really controls how this planet runs, right? Why, why do we have oxygen just in about the right amount? Why is it just around nicely 20 degrees in most places? Mm-hmm. That's not natural, right? So... The fancy term for that is earth system science. How do these things connect? How do we connect biology, plate tectonics, chemistry to make a planet which is actually habitable? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I would think, is the underlying theme I'm really interested in. I, I really like that theme, actually. One, one of the things I like about the earth sciences is that it's involved in some of the biggest questions that we can have. Oh, that's absolutely. A, as the bipedal hairless primates that we are, how did we get here? And what happened in the past that resulted in us being here today? And to what extent was it inevitable to happen the way that it did? It's very hard to get some numbers on that. I mean, because we only have this one data point, us on Earth. The great oxygenation event, or the GOE, is just one step in a seemingly unlikely chain of events that led to Homo sapiens being here. So the primary interest in this paper for me is that it can weigh in on the inevitability of our existence question. Another thing that made me appreciate this paper personally is that I realized while reading it how crucial my courses have been over the last couple of years. I felt like I had crossed kind of a minor educational threshold because to understand it, I had to draw on what I learned in several of my second and third year classes, the atmosphere-biosphere interactions, the Earth systems evolution class, the aqueous geochemistry. It can seem like a lot when you're stuck in the mundane coursework that you have, but the top half of the of the ES undergrad degree can feel worth it. So with that, Sophia, take it away with the paper summary. Thanks, Dean. So the paper that we'll be talking about today, it's uh, been published a little while ago in December of 2019. So by authors Louis J. Alcott, Benjamin J. W. Mills, and Simon W. Poulton. And so their paper proposed an alternative hypothesis on how the oxygenation of our atmosphere actually happened. So to give a little background on this, the oxygenation of our atmosphere was a tripart event in Earth's history that's made up of these three big increases to the amount of oxygen in in Earth's atmosphere. So first is the Great Oxidation Event, which Dean mentioned, which took place 2.4 billion years ago during the Paleoproterozoic era. And then there was the Neoproterozoic oxygenation event, which saw the oxygenation of the deep ocean. And finally, we have the Paleozoic oxygenation event, which further oxidized the deep ocean and brought the oxygen concentration in our atmosphere to a comfortable, like Uli said, 21%. And this can't just be a happy coincidence. 
So some claim that these oxygenation events are related to an increase in photosynthesis that accompanied the sudden booms in biodiversity. So what's your take on this uh, hypothesis, Uli? Um, let me backtrack for a second. What the, the big question this paper is really asking, and I find is super exciting, and I haven't really phrased it, framed it that way either, is, mm -hmm. is it a necessity that we get an oxygen a planet with oxygen in life? Or is it a big fluke in cosmic history, right? Mm -hmm. So we're discovering all these new planets now. I don't know how many we have out there. But so far, and when we look at a planet, we look at what's called the Goldilocks zone, right? It should be close enough to a planet that there is enough light to do photosynthesis and to keep the planet warm, but not so close that it is actually too hot, right? And we know from our own planetary system, for example, Venus is still in the Goldilocks zone, yet it's at 400 degrees, there's no life there. Why is that? It's a big miracle in a way, right? So are we just lucky that we are here on a planet which is habitable? Or is this something which is kind of rooted in what happens anyway? And that's one of the big questions this paper, this paper is asking. Is this like a coincidence or is this like a logical evolution of something which should happen in other places too. Right. Okay. Can you rephrase your question here? Because I lost track going waxing about all the <laughs> importance of things. No, I'm actually, I'm glad that you kind of brought us back and so that we saw the bigger picture of this article. Uh, I just wanted to give a little bit of background because I mean, their model is, is great and it's, I think is very plausible, but there's two big theories or big original hypotheses that explain or attempt to explain the increase of, of oxygen and these great oxygenation events. And one of them is the increase in these uh, eukaryotes, which then increase the level of photosynthesis, which then in turn increase the level of oxygen. So what do you think about this hypothesis in general? Um, okay, so my take on this is, first of all, we need to be aware, we're talking deep time, right? Mm -hmm. This is all like being really, really long time ago. There's so many things we don't understand about the last glacial system, right? where we have everything we want. And, but here we barely have any, any record. So there's a lot of questions out here. And one of the first questions we would have to ask is, when was it actually that photosynthesis started to be uh, to become prevalent, right? right? And one thing we have to understand about photosynthesis is if you are some sort of microbe swimming around in this primordial soup, eating or getting eaten, that's a tough life, right? And suddenly your neighbor figures out how to do this, just swim in his pool, wait for the sunshine and he gets fed. This is so much more comfortable, right? Which means he's gonna actually expand his property because he doesn't have to worry, everything's automatic by sunshine. So some people say this whole idea about photosynthesis, evolution came across that, that came into being very, very early on, maybe like 500 million years after Earth cooled. So by 400 giga years ago, photosynthesis would have been active. So it came very early in terms of evolutionary history. But then the big question is, if that came early, it should have taken over the planet in a couple of years, right? Because you're outcompeting everyone. You just overtake everything. So why took it until almost 2 billion years that we actually see the first free oxygen, right? right? So some people say, well, photosynthesis came in really, really late, just right before the, uh, the great oxidation event. Other people say, no, we have to think about really, there may have been factors which kept photosynthesis low. 
So that's the first big question. How old is photosynthesis, right? And then when it came, how fast did it come? We, what we do know, however, is once we had the great oxidation event, photosynthesis dropped down again, and we enter what's called the boring billion. For one billion years, nothing really happened on Earth. We had very low oxygen levels. There was no evolutionary breakthroughs, right? And then suddenly we had, bang, this another puff, and oxygen levels jump up at the, at the beginning of the Cambrian. Right. So there are big questions around that. Why took it so long? Why was it stepwise? Why didn't it really work for one billion years, despite the fact that photosynthesis was absolutely known to be working? So these are the, the tricky questions to answer. So it really seems that the timing is off for this theory. And it's kind of interesting because the second hypothesis also has a little bit of a timing issue. So the second hypothesis is that tectonics and mantle dynamics change the level of oxygen in the atmosphere because volcanoes emitted more oxygen and uh, the oxygen content in the crust also increased. But the timing also seems off for this one. So what's your what's your take on that theory instead? Well, timing is a very difficult concept in earth sciences, right? <laughs> oh, it's, I think, one of the primary questions. <laughs> so one of my favorite lines when we do this field trip to the Grand Canyon is where we stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon and you go like just, okay, I don't really understand what I'm seeing. It is all so big, right? Mm -hmm. But we talk about the fact that you see about 500 million years of earth history and it's just a big wall of rocks, which you can climb if you fit enough. But then we talk about the fact that what you see there is really just very snapshots of Earth history. We don't really see the full history, right? And my famous, my, my favorite comparison is, is you have a great party, you take pictures, right, on the party. The next day you find those pictures posted on Facebook. So the Earth record we have are those Facebook pictures, right, not the party. So time is such a difficult thing so if people say hey the timing doesn't work out that's usually not a very strong argument because the record is so spotty mm -hmm. um, what is true is that we have different groups of people and they all obviously publish and push their first their their pet hypothesis so there's a group for for, for them everything is volcanoes right and then there's another group for them everything is internal feedbacks and <laughs> the next group talks about it. it's all biology so um, this is partly rooted how science works uh, I don't think it's really an issue with the data that much I mean we do know put it that way what do we know about the things we do know we have these big time periods in earth history we have the Archean we have the Paleoproterozoic we have the Neoproterozoic why do we have these names? Where do these time periods come from, right? They typically relate to something, say, the occurrence of fossils. The Proterozoic, this is Greek, it basically means before we see fossils, right? The Archean was just such a weird time that it, again, the rocks looked all different than in the Proterozoic. So that's why we have these big units. So what happened at the end of the Archean? We don't know for sure, but what we see is that the type of rocks changes. Suddenly, we see the occurrence of modern rock types, carbonates, passive margin sequences, turbidites, right? So mm -hmm. it starts looking like the modern world, whereas the Archean does not. So what changed and what a lot of people hypothesize is that we went from a different style of plate tectonic in the Archean world to modern type of plate tectonics where we see subduction, 
volcanism. In the old times, it was called the stagnant lid. So the crustal rocks or the plates, like the lithosphere, was just too hot. It couldn't be subducted, really, right? So that changed at this Archean Proterozoic time. And I don't know whether it's related or not, but at the same time, we see the great oxidation event. So is there a causal link or not? I don't know, right? But that's why people come with these ideas. It's being driven by plate tectonics. And one thing which we rarely ever discuss very clearly here is people, when we think about, so where does oxygen come from? A while ago, I gave a talk, which with this kind of quirky title, oxygen does not grow on trees, right? And why do I say that? Yes, we all know trees makes oxygen, which is very true. But the trick is the tree grows, makes oxygen its whole lifetime. The tree topples over. We reoxidize the whole tree and the complete amount of oxygen which the tree gave off during his lifetime is being used up again to decompose the tree. So it's a, it's a zero sum. So just by having photosynthesis, you're not making any oxygen, mm -hmm. right? Right. Because the algae who make photosynthesis, they die off. And by that, yeah. they consume the oxygen. So the only way to actually make oxygen is to interrupt that breakdown process, the decomposition of organic material. And that happens only if you can bury it away in sediments, right? Now, plate tectonics change. We suddenly get proper continents. We get passive continental margins, the Huronian supergroup. All of you who have been up to Whitefish Falls Field can have seen those. And that's where we bury all the organic matter in passive continental margin sequences. So one thing which changed around that time is that we suddenly had storage for organic matter, and that would actually bring up the oxygen content massively, right? Yeah. There is, in fact, evidence, sedimentary evidence, fossil evidence, and geochemical evidence that we saw around this time a massive spike in, um, in oxygen, right? It came back down to low levels again, but there's a couple ideas out there who say oxygen was at least as high as we have it currently, maybe just for 100 million years. And crazy enough, we find now that people start looking and know about these things, we start finding fossils during that time. Some are controversial, others are not. There's multicellular life rust around the great oxidation event, right? So this is fascinating. Actually, some of those fossils come up from the field camp in one area in Whitefish Falls. Yeah, so is it related? I do not know. But I think there are things which change. So we go to modern plate tectonics. We start seeing a modern um, hydrological cycle, modern weathering patterns, right? And all of these things play into oxygen use, oxygen production. There's a saying that if you're a hammer, everything looks like nails. So I've heard people apply yeah. that to Earth's history. If you're an astrophysicist, everything looks like asteroids and comets. If you're a geologist, everything looks like volcanism. I had a very memorable field trip with uh, some um, structural guys in the in the Alps, and whenever they saw rocks, they couldn't explain. They said, "Oh, those are sediments." I mean, the sediments were the same. The sedimentologists were the same, right? Whenever something didn't fit, they said, "Oh, that must be a fault." So mm -hmm. <laughs> we have this, these these biases in our cognition where we the problem is always someone else's problem, right? And the good mm -hmm. stuff is always ours. So we do these kind of things as scientists, right? And it almost feels like, so in, in this article, these scientists wanted to maybe take the, the global biogeochemical cycle approach to it. So they kind of wanted to zoom out and they kind of 
reasoned that that cycle was the reason for the rise in oxygen. And they built a pretty sophisticated, in my opinion, like a computer simulation model where they had three global cycles superimposed, which was the carbon, phosphorus, and oxygen cycles. And their main finding was that distinct oxygenation events are bound to happen because of the interaction between these cycles. But what's interesting is that these, these cycles actually operate in different ways and produce the opposite results. So for instance, in the short term, the amount of sedimentary phosphorus increases with the amount of ocean anoxia, which just means the, the lack of oxygen in the ocean, which then results in eutrophication, which is essentially the process that gradually depletes oxygen. And we may be familiar with the case in the Great Lakes, uh, Lake Erie, is I believe still going through the eutrophication process, but there's just a bunch of algae in the lake and it's removing all the oxygen in the lake. So it's obviously detrimental to the fish and, and all, all the life that's in there. But in the long term, if we look at the reverse process, the carbon burial cycle, like we mentioned, actually increases the amount of oxygen. So in the end, it turns out that the combination of these cycles result in, the, in sustained ocean oxygenation with small setbacks in geologic time from the effects of the short term phosphorus cycles. So Uli, I wanted to ask, Throughout Earth's history, the oxygen balance was sustained through oxidative weathering, and that's what this article mentions as well. What is this process and why does it sustain the oxygen balance? Um, well, so there's two things, right? You make oxygen and then you consume oxygen. So these are the, that's the balance. On one side, you produce something. On the other side, you, 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 uh, you eat it. Now, where's oxygen consumed? Oxygen is consumed in the decay of organic matter, as you said, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we produce organic matter in the ocean, it sinks to the bottom and some of it gets oxidized, the majority actually, and a tiny little bit goes out into uh, the rocks, and becomes coal, for example, or oil, hydrocarbons, right? And then those rocks get put into the big rock cycling machine, they get subducted, they, and then the carbon comes back out in volcanoes, it comes back up in mountain chains where it's being exposed as coal seams, and that's the oxidative weathering part. So if the oxygen is there, it will again reoxidize those old rocks, which are full of reduced carbon, and that will consume, the oxy will consume oxygen. So it's really a balance between the reduced elements and the oxidized elements. And the two most important elements we have out here in terms of just pure mass is carbon and sulfur, both actually, right? So if you have reduced elements like organic matter or reduced sulfur like pyrite, when they get exposed to the atmosphere, they suck up all this oxygen and they get converted to carbonate or uh, sulfate, right? Then these elements go back into the ocean and their microbes start attacking them, doing photosynthesis or microbial sulfate reduction and put them back into their reduced state. So the whole thing is one big redox reaction. And that kind of the speed and the rate of these things controls the oxygen. Okay. But the, the, the point the article makes is the more oxygen you have, the more weathering you can do. And that's the ultimate balance because otherwise it would be a runaway situation, right? So there's a rate dependency here. Mm -hmm. So this, this paper kind of separates the different ocean environments rather than having them all as, as one big environment. It separates the atmosphere and the sh ocean shelf, the open ocean and the deep ocean environments to model this cycling. Why is it important to separate these different 
uh, environments to get a more accurate model? They do different things, but right? it's a functional differentiation we do here. So photosynthesis, you need light. So photosynthesis only happens in the upper, let's be generous, 200 meters of the ocean. That's how far the light can penetrate into the ocean. Afterwards, it's pitch black, no more photosynthesis. So all primary product, production, which means where you actually produce organic matter out of inorganic carbon, right? This is photosynthesis, that really cool trick where you take CO2 and you take it into living matter. That's, that's amazing. And that can only happen if you have sunshine. So that happens in the upper ocean. Now, once the algae have li happily lived their life and they die off, they sink down into the deeper ocean. And that's where the reverse process happens. Oxygen gets consumed and we remineralize the organic matter. So we have another box there, right? Now, if you have 5,000 meters to sink through until you hit the ocean bottom, most of the organic matter gets actually just simply reoxidized. Nothing much can get buried, right? Organic matter burial rates in the open ocean are very minor. If you, however, live on the shallow shelf where water depth is at best at max 200 meters, right? You have much more potential to actually take this organic matter, put it in the sediment and get it away from any oxygen. At the same time, we also get organic matter in from rivers, etc. So the organic matter burial happens on the shelf, right? So we have production, anything shallower than 200 meters. And we have this big deep box where we bury very little. And we have the shallow box where most of the organic matter gets buried. That's why they separate these things. Oh, okay. And I'm guessing that makes for a more accurate model because these processes can't happen unless they're in that box. Yeah, that's one thing. And it has to do with how much oxygen you consume, how fast these boxes are mixed, how much, right? So there's a couple variables in here we, we play around with. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested to read that the phosphorus cycle plays a really big role in the oxygenation of our atmosphere. I had no idea about this. And what it said specifically is that the increase in phosphorus in the ocean leads to the decrease of oxygen, but that in the early Archean, phosphorus was effectively trapped in the sediments because of the iron oxides, which prevented from which prevented phosphorus from making its way into the water column and then by effect removing that oxygen. And I was kind of confused about how does this how does this work? And isn't that just another feedback loop, considering iron oxides require oxygen to even form or exist? Well, there's two important things here. So let's let's touch base on the role of phosphorus. I mean, we, we started out saying that photosynthesis comes for free. It's not entirely true, right? To actually create organic material, you need nutrients, right? Why do we need nutrients? Because, say, the energy shuttling system in your cell is made out of phosphor and sulfur, right? ADP, ATP. And um, sulfur is around a lot. But phosphor is a, we call it a micronutrient. It's really, it's hard to come by, right? So how much organic matter you can produce with all the sunshine in the world really depends on how much phosphorus you have available. Hmm. So if there's not enough phosphor, you can't really make a big life. You can't live the big life, right? So it's kind of the bottleneck. That's the bottleneck. That's the ultimate bottleneck. So planetary photosynthesis rates, where we look at the whole planet, are first order governed by availability of phosphor that's it no phosphor not much photosynthesis right now what you are talking about is another very important term we call feedback so feedback is something 
where you do a tiny little push and then you get a big action happening. So say you're on a mountaintop and you start rolling that boulder. Initially it takes a little effort and suddenly that boulder starts rolling faster and faster and you go like, oh my God, I should not have done this, right? <laughs> that can end up in a bad runaway situation. So that's a feedback between gravity and inertia, right? And it gets faster and faster and faster. What would be a feedback? So that's what we call a positive feedback. Now there may be a negative feedback here. The kinetic energy in the boulder may become so strong that it actually starts disrupting the mineral fabric and then the boulder breaks apart and the whole system comes to a stop. So that's a negative feedback. So that's breaking. And what we learn now about the earth system, it's comprised of many, many feedbacks, positives and negatives, and somehow they balance out each other. Not always on the same time scale, which is the argument made here in that paper that the feedback between phosphorus release and burial and organic matter creation and burial operates on different time scales, and so they get an oscillating system, right? That's kind of what they show. Mm -hmm. hmm. So in our uh, second year field course uh, in Whitefish, we got to see some of the a little bit, a little small portion of the banded iron formation. And I actually saw some of it while I was in South Africa for mineral deposits course. What is the relationship between the great oxygenation event and the formation of the banded iron? Um, as far as I know, there is no direct evidence, no direct link between these two. So um, banded iron formations, the What's important about them is that we see red iron. So it's iron three, right? It tells us that there was free oxygen available. <laughs> and those banded iron formations appear before the great oxidation event. Oh. So they are so they're there from that we actually know photosynthesis must have happened in one way or another, but they appear insular in small places. So the idea is that we had an ocean which was oxygen-free, but we had these oases with oxygen, right? We're localized, we had oxygen production, say in a lagoon, right? Mm -hmm. Photosynthesis was going on and happy, and then oxidizing iron 2 to iron 3, creating these beautiful red-layered rocks. Now, in the papers I've read on the Great Oxidation Event, I never saw really a causal link between these two things as in saying, okay, we have the great oxidation event and the BIFs kind of tells us this story. But mm -hmm. I'm no expert on BIFs. I must really make that, uh, make that caveat here. I've actually never seen one. That is really the bad, the oh. sad part. Oh, it was like a tiny little outcrop. It was Wait, the only one we you saw. Where did you see that? I taught whitefish for 10 years. So there's like a little class um, of it actually in one of the, in one of the side of the road. Ah, cool. Like this little class of, of banded iron formation, and that's like a highlight of the trip. Yeah, Yeah, totally. we all took a picture beside it. <laughs> Professor Shu was like, oh my gosh, look, look, and he was just smiling so big, pointing it out with the banded <laughs> yeah, that, iron class. That is nice to see, yeah. So Uli, I wanted to go back and ask, in this article there was uh, citations where they were talking about several oscillations in the global oxygen levels. So it said that, the oxygenation of shelf environments results in reduction of organic carbon burial rates. But as we've already heard, the reduction in carbon burial rates reduces the oxygen content of the atmosphere. So these oscillations are possible and actually did happen. So are such reversal events in the levels of oxygen possible now? Not in the way the paper showed it, 
right? So what the papers show were really large scale swings in oxygen. And um, some of them may or may not be related to the famous global uh, uh, glaciation, the snowball earth history, etc. What we do know, however, is, or think we know, that the oxygen content of the ocean can change quite a bit, right? And there are famous ideas for the end Permian, for example, where we lost all oxygen in the ocean and it was replaced. And then sulfate reduction starts operating and produces hydrogen sulfide, which is highly poisonous. And their idea was that there was so much hydrogen sulfide in the ocean that the gas actually swept over onto the continents and killed off animals, right? That's an idea which is out there. I know from my own research in the PETM uh, that we think that we see a massive loss of oxygen in the oceans and the replacement with hydrogen sulfide in the ocean, but not coming up to the surface. That would be just the deep ocean. So that is something which is related to the global warming story, and it may certainly happen. There are models out there which look at what's going to happen to our own ocean, and they predict that we will have measurable oxygen loss within the next 20 years. Hmm. So, but that's more like, now we're talking more like the eutrophication of Lake Erie, right? So we're not, we're not talking about massive changes in oxygen. One of the tricky things here, I think I, wanna, I don't want to hijack your conversation, but it's such a cool topic. Can we get more oxygen? So there's the whole thing about the Permian, where we find these crazy insects. They're like half a meter big. Mm-hmm. Now, what we know about the insects is they don't have lungs. They have trachea, right? So the way, how much oxygen they can take up is very limited for them. So that's limit actually the size of, of uh, any insect is the oxygen uptake. And suddenly we find this period where we have massive insects. They were flying, right? How can this be? And people say, well, it's clear there must have been much more oxygen in the atmosphere. So that may be a time where we had much higher levels. The problem with that is once you go a little bit above the current levels of oxygen, wood will start self-ignite, right? Oh, So that then creates a natural feedback loop to bring oxygen levels back down because if you ignite wood, you start burning organic matter, which means we oxidize it, consuming all the oxygen. So scientists have long looked, can we find evidence for these global forest fires in a way, right? It's still a big open debate. Did we have more oxygen in permanent or not? But I'm happy if it stays at 21%, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It comes with a bit of relief. One thing that I would really appreciate as someone who burns in the sun really easily is more ozone. Can we like geoengineer a thicker ozone layer with that extra oxygen and and make it so I can go out without sunscreen for like eight hours, you know? I think it would be much easier if you resettle somewhere north where there's less sun. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't want more snow. (laughs) I want less cancer. Geoengineering is a very tricky subject, right? Because there are so many little feedback loops and we don't really know how they actually all interact. So it's a big experiment you're making and it could go totally the wrong way. We're already doing a big geoengineering experiment at the moment by the release of all the fossil hydrocarbons we're doing. People have come up with all sorts of interesting schemes like releasing sulfate into the atmosphere to create more clouds so that it would cool down. However, if you do the numbers right, it could happen the opposite effect, right? So it's, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a tricky thing. 
But you're right on one point. I mean, oxygen is actually really interesting because it is the oxygen metabolic system we have, which gives us so much energy that we could do multicellular life, become more complex and start walking around, right? That requires a hell of a lot of energy. You can't do that if you're breathing sulfate. Mm -hmm. um, but it comes with a price, right? And that price we pay still these days in form of cancer, right? It is the oxygen which actually causes the breakdown of our cells. So that's tightly related to our ability to function as a multicellular organism comes the price that we can't live forever. Mm. So it is a, it's a, as anything, there's no free lunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll work on that free lunch though. Yeah. <laughs> so another thing though, um, in hindsight, from our perspective, the great oxygenation event was great. From our perspective, it's, it, it, we're glad it happened. But from the perspective of the microbes at the time, it wasn't so great. In fact, earth scientists have often referred to it as the oxygen crisis or the oxygen catastrophe. Uh, why is this the case? Well, it, it kind of really feeds into the question I just had, right? So oxygen is highly toxic, right? Mm -hmm. So we have very complicated biochemical uh, chemistry in our cells to deal with that toxicity. But if you don't have this evolutionary adaption to deal with these things, well, oxygen kills you. This is really what it is. So at the time, we have must imagine an Earth, uh, well, it was barren to begin with, right? There were no plants, but plenty of microbes around, all happily doing their thing, methane, sulfate, all these kind of things. But the minute oxygen came along, they would go, and they're gone, right? So the, those photosynthesis comes in and suddenly people, uh, the bacteria produce oxygen. It kills off the whole ecosystem, which was there, planetary wide. And these old style metabolic systems like sulfate reduction, methane based life forms, etc. they still live, but we need to go into exotic environments like into um, volcanoes, black smokers, the deep biosphere into places where the oxygen cannot penetrate. So there we still find the old life forms. But at the time, it was quite the catastrophe. And there was another catastrophe in a second way. You might have, uh, Shu might have told you that on the field camp, which brings us back to the question, why is Earth warm, right? Initially, in the early Earth, we had a methane-filled atmosphere. And methane is an excellent uh, greenhouse gas. So Earth was fairly nice and warm. Now, if you mix methane and oxygen, the methane goes away very quickly. So around the great oxidation event, we suddenly started reoxidizing all this methane. It was gone in the atmosphere, which means the planet lost its blanket and it got really frigid cold. So we saw global glaciation events, which are nicely recorded and seen in your first field camp. You see the uh, diamictites there, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a major catastrophe, yes. So Uli, I want to kind of bring it back and finish off with, I think, the main point of this article, which was, or I think the most interesting conclusion that, that these scientists proposed is that since the model kind of showed that these events to the great oxygenation were inevitable, that this is a process that is possible and even likely to happen on other planets. So I was wondering, what did you, what did you think about that conclusion? Um, yes and no. Typical scientist answer, right? So 
<laughs> I think that it's great that they can show a simple model with very little constraints and assumptions where you just say, look, we control the degassing rate of reducing gases. And if we do this, we can come up with a model where we suddenly see a stepwise rise in oxygen, a long stasis phase, and then another jump. So this is there's real value in seeing this, right? We don't need to do any fancy things. Uh, but we have to bring it back to one of the great thinkers, uh, which was highly controversial, uh, James Lovelock with Gaia, right? There's a lot of other things which have to go right. For example, you need to have water, right? And he made that kind of really smart point and said, initially in a reducing atmosphere, most hydrogen exists as molecular hydrogen, not as, not as oxidized hydrogen, right? And one of his thoughts was, unless you actually get photosynthesis going fairly soon, most of that hydrogen will escape to, will escape to space before you can convert it into water. Mm -hmm. Now, there's another thought of thinking. He said, well, the water doesn't come from the hydrogen, it comes all from comets. I don't know what's true or right, right? Mm -hmm. But I want to caveat here. I want to say this caveat. A lot of things have to go right. You have to right. be in the right spot. You have to have the right amount of hydrogen, the right amount of comets, whichever way you use, right? So I believe there's truly in the in the planetary evolution, there's a short time frame when this whole has to come together to make it work, right? Because otherwise you have a runaway system like on Venus, or you go cold and get just freeze down and nothing happens, or you dry out like Mars, right? Mm. And um so that's where the whole thing becomes really interesting when we start talking about planets and how likely is it. On the other hand, there are a lot of planets out there, right? Yeah, yeah. there's so a lot. That's true. There's a lot. Uh, what was that number? Star systems in the universe exceeds the number of sand grains on Earth, right? Yeah. So, it's, so even if it only happens like once in a million times, there's still plenty out there. Mm -hmm. Well... Just to elaborate on the Gaia hypothesis real quickly. Um, so it basically it states that at a meta level, life interacts in complex ways with its inorganic surroundings and becomes self-regulating and self-sustaining. Life, in a way, keeps spaceship Earth hospitable to itself. But there has also been an anti-Gaian hypothesis called the Medea hypothesis proposed by paleontologist Peter Ward, which states that life when understood as a superorganism, is actually suicidal. In multiple attempts, microbes have caused catastrophes such as methane poisonings, hydrogen sulfide poisonings, potentially snowball earth periods, and this great oxygenation poisoning uh, is also another citation for that. It's as if the microbes want to reduce all life down to the microbial state. But if the GOE was not actually biologically induced, then maybe that's one less piece of evidence for that proposal and one more piece of evidence for the Gaia hypothesis of stabilization. Well, we have to, I mean, Gaia, we have to be a bit mindful. Gaia was proposed during the hippie years, right? So mm -hmm. uh, Lovelock was a brilliant guy. Uh, like, it's, it's really amazing if you read his biography. Um, but he, he phrased it in a way which was really hard to stomach for scientists at the time, right? So he said life is a self-sustaining organism, like as we had a planetary consciousness. It makes total sense for the flower power time, right? 
I think nowadays we would talk about a feedback system, mm-hmm. right? So self feedbacks are exactly that they self sustaining. I don't think they have any purpose or that. I don't right. But once they're going, they are self-sustaining. And Lovelock's contribution was to show that these feedback system would stabilize a planetary system. Right? Mm-hmm. And you made a very strong case there. Uh, you're right that life can be quite disastrous, but none of what you said actually wiped out life. Right? Mm-hmm. Life as a planetary phenomenon. It wiped out individual, like we got rid of all the sulfate reducers because oxygen took over. Mm-hmm. It was a turbulent time, but after that, things cooled down and everything was quite pleasant again, right? So that's, I, I think that's a bit of an overstatement to say life has a tendency to kill itself. Maybe this is a, a, a hero story for the, the 1% of the species at that point that just survived through it and, and how that kind of plays into the whole story of Earth's history. Yeah, I mean, but we, regardless what you think, if we didn't have life on this planet, we know exactly how it would look like, right? It would be much colder, it would be a barren rock, and um, it would not be very hospitable to begin with. I have one more paper-related question. I know we're kind of going longer than we normally do, but this is a really interesting topic to me. Um, a few years ago, I remember reading a paper about how they... Uh, but a team of researchers decided that oxygen should be our telltale sign of other of life on other planets. So when they're using uh, their telescopes to look at the composition of the atmospheres of other planets, the number one thing that this this interdisciplinary group of researchers said was to look for oxygen because that is probably the the best sign that we can get from our distance. Do you do you agree, still agree with that? Does this shine, shed any light on that assumption at all? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, our atmosphere is in a huge chemical imbalance to the crust, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a couple things you could look for, carbon dioxide, for example, but the CO2 concentrations are so small, whereas oxygen has a pretty big part of our atmosphere, so it might be actually far easier to detect in, uh, in spectrographic methods, right, than trace, than trace gases. Mm-hmm. So, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's we know what the atmosphere should look like if it were in balance with the crust, and it's totally out of balance, and that's because of life. So looking for these imbalances, eh, that is the way to detect life, which is why it's so funny that we start looking for trying to drill all those microbes on Mars, right? I mean, we know that the Mars atmosphere is in balance with its crust. Mm. So, People kind of eventually realized that, and uh, it's quite funny. Lovelock was on the first team for the first Mars uh, um, expedition, right? And even at the time, people knew that the atmosphere is very much in balance. And he pointed that out, so they kicked him out of the team. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, no. but now, now the focus goes: Can we find any evidence of past life, right? Mm-hmm. So, which is might be the case right we don't know but yeah chemical imbalances is a telltale sign of life well it it pains me to to kind of wrap up the paper the paper questions now we definitely have to have you back but before we end the episode we ask our guests two hard-hitting questions oh boy and uh (laughs) don't worry don't worry i'm sure you're ready and uh, i for me my question is if you weren't studying the earth sciences what would you be doing Oh boy. 
I always wanted to become a pilot. Oh, interesting. Uh, I totally flunked the exams for, for the pilot school. Mm. Oh, no. Is oh, that what man. it was? And uh, then um, I always had, a, had fun with computers and coding, so I almost went into uh, computer sciences. Okay. But I, I, I'm so happy to be in earth sciences, really. Mm-hmm. I guess that's why you're teaching Python in the fall. You get to channel uh, a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun for me. And my question would be, if you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you, whether it's related to the earth sciences or not, uh, what would it be? Ha! Whether those fossils we find in uh, around Sudbury, which are related to the great oxidation events, are indeed multicellular lives or not. That is, oh, okay. That is so, we had a whole grad course on this last, last spring. It was absolutely fascinating. And this is really, if you see the pictures, you go like, oh my God, it's kind of, I can't believe this, right? Mm-hmm. What, what implications would that have if it were? Well, that life started about 200 billion years earlier than we think it did, right? 200 million oh, years wow. earlier? Yeah. Wow. Right? These are fossils which are 2 billion years old, 2.4 mm-hmm. billion years. And it ties directly into those questions, is life self-stabilizing or not? Because if it were why did the planet go back into stasis, right? Mm-hmm. So life was not able to sustain, if it was around, it was not able to sustain a habitable planet past the great oxidation event, which is absolutely fascinating. So that's a question I find at the moment really fascinating. And if you see those fossils, I hope you can come by in the fall. It's, it's really amazing. I will definitely try to do that. This just confirms that geology is all about time. Just going back to that. <laughs> it's about time, imagination, and the fun of being outside, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Sophia, would you like to give us our ending episode quote? Yes, uh, thank you, Dean. So our quote today comes from one of my favorite scientists and science popularizers, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he says, the four most common chemically active elements in the universe, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen, are the four most common elements of life on Earth. We are not simply in the universe. The universe is in us. True. Very true. Nice quote. (laughs) Very reminiscent of Sagan without having to quote Sagan again. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't since the first episode, Dean. We're we're reining you in. Okay. Dean just really likes Carl Sagan. (laughs) Carl Sagan is a great guy. (laughs) We had this, I I did this 199 course on on, uh, death and life in the universe and then we came across Sagan. We did actually a whole section on spaceship design. It was awesome. So, Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you uh, again, Uli, for, for being with us. It's been a great discussion. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was a, This was fun. Thanks a lot. Hope to see you in the fall. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you tune in next week for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university.